How do you know that you will be in heaven one day? How do you know that something's not just going to take place from now until that point? Uh, another way to ask it, and maybe you know, it might be a little more realistic to you, is how do you know that you'll be a Christian in five years? How do you know you'll be a Christian in five months? How do you know you'll be a Christian in five days? It's a good question. And how you answer that question yourself personally is very important for your understanding of the gospel and your assurance of your salvation based upon what? Based upon your answer. How you answer. How do you know you'll get to heaven? How do you know you'll be a Christian in five days? Answers how you know that you will be assured. What would make you lose your salvation? Now, you may be quick to answer that question, and rightly so, to say, well, you can't lose your salvation. So what do you think then will keep your faith? If you can't lose it, what keeps it? That's obviously the question around the discussion of what has been referred to as eternal security or once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. I want to read for us from Romans 14 today. Again, Romans 14. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 4. Let's hear God's word. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Praise God for this portion of his word. Now, I don't think it's normally a good practice in preaching to take a Bible text and use it as a springboard to talk about a topic you want to talk about. But there are times, like today, where in order to understand the context properly and in order to um, appropriately apply this text to our life, uh, we must take an intentional bunny trail through the scriptures to, to really build on our foundation and our proper application of this Text. I want us to look specifically at Romans 14 and verse 4, uh, and the, the end of the verse really, uh, it ends, uh, well, the second half and is where we're really going to camp out. So Romans 14, 4, we just read it, I'll read it again for you, it says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Now here's a question we must consider before we launch into other passages. Is what are some things that we trust in to uphold our faith? Because here it says um, he will be upheld. He will be upheld. What are some things that people trust in? If you ask someone, how do you know you're getting to heaven? What are some of the answers you get? Some of them are, well, God's gracious, isn't he? God's loving, isn't he? Uh, um, God is kind. God would never uh, cast me to hell. I'm not that evil of a person, am I? 
you get those kind of flaky answers, but then you have, you know, more Christian answers. Like, well, I, I know I'm getting heaven because, you know, I was saved on this date at this time. Uh, I signed a card, I raised my hand, I walked the aisle. Or, I was baptized on this day, and, and I made my profession of faith on this day. Or, I'm a member of a church. Or, or I go every single Sunday, or I, I pray and I tithe. And those are the things that really um, say that I'm a Christian, and that means I'm going to go to heaven. You have those in the Christian flavor. And here... Based on the context, it was based on their convictions, not just what they believed, what they had done in the past in terms of uh, events, like checking the box or getting baptized, um, but it was convictions they held and how they lived them out on a daily basis. The convictions here in Romans 14, as we've looked at already, are, are those who are in their Christian liberty, feel free to not abstain from food or from drink or from a certain dress or from whatever have you and within the bounds of does it glorify God or does it defame his name? Obviously within that bounds, they are liberated. They are free to live out their Christian life with different convictions and uh, like verse one said, opinions, different opinions than other Christians. So those, and then you have the other person, which is the one who is really constrained their boundaries of, of what glorifies God and what defames him is very, very small around him, and it's informed a lot by the law. Well, it glorifies God to, to abstain from this kind of meat, and so I'm going to abstain. And it glorifies God to, to celebrate this feast day or this festival, and so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and so their boundaries are a lot tighter. And so the question in this context then is, well, what might it be assuming that this person thinks he may be upheld by. Because here, it's telling the one to not judge the other. It is before his own master, it says in verse 4, that he will stand or fall. So it's not like you get to determine whether he will go to heaven or not. That's not your job. It is his master's job to do that. But then next, it says, and he will be upheld. So the text is adamant that this person, who you want to cast judgment on, and maybe even cast them off and say, I don't know if they're a Christian. This text says, if they're a servant of the living God, he will uphold them. They will be upheld, but it's not based on what they might trust in. Here, the one who abstains, the one who rejects eating certain foods or, or wearing certain clothes or getting tattoos or drinking alcohol, this person sometimes holds on to those things and says, this is the evidence that I'm going to heaven one day. This is what's going to make me stand. This is what's going to keep me a Christian, is if I just keep obeying these laws. That's what keeps me a Christian, don't you know? I remain in the family of God because I follow the festivals. I remain in the family of God because I follow this dietary laws. That's what keeps me a Christian in five days and in five months and in five years. And then the other person who is just free, they say, what keeps me a Christian is my liberty, understanding the grace of God. That's maybe what keeps me a Christian. But here, as we'll discover, it is much deeper than their faith lived out and the convictions that uh, that expresses in their life. It is not upheld. We are not upheld because of the convictions we hold even. That's not what makes or keeps us a Christian. And I think what I just said, that line is very important. It's not what makes you a Christian, so therefore it won't keep you a Christian. And that's what Paul, you know, when he was speaking to the Galatians, he said, you guys are so foolish. 
Why do you think that, you know, if the Spirit of God has brought you into the faith and brought you into the family of God, why do you think that following these rules is going to keep you in the faith? He says, that's foolish. Don't be uh, tricked by someone who ever tries to convince you that uh, the rules you follow or the boxes you check is what makes you or keeps you a Christian. He says, you understood the gospel, that it was by faith alone and Christ alone that, that brought you into the family of God, that forgave you of your sin, that gave you newness of life. It was that, the Spirit of God doing that work in your life that made you a Christian. So it's going to be the very same thing that keeps you a Christian. It is not your convictions or your living out of your convictions. It's not your practice of faith that will keep you a Christian. It's not your faith that keeps you in the family. It is God. It is God, the covenant keeping God who never breaks a promise. It is he who keeps you in the family. Look at the verse there. The, the second half of verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 4 of Romans 14. It says, and he will be upheld. It's certain. For, because the Lord is able. The Lord is able. God is able to do this thing. And this is the God who is faithful Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. You don't ever need to waver from your hope. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And so this God who is able is the God who is faithful. And that's the reason we have a hope that is unwavering, a confession that we can look to because of the covenant-keeping God. In 1 Peter 1, verse 5, it says, And you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by God's power. Here in our text, it says, God is able. And in 1 Peter 1, 5, it says, you're guarded by God's power, this God who is able, this God who is faithful, this God who is all-powerful. There is nothing outside of his ability. He is the one who guards your faith and holds it until the day of salvation, the, the final day of our, our consummation with him. You're being guarded by God's power. And then in Jude uh, verse 24, it says, now to him, now to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To him belongs glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you. What keeps you a Christian? What keeps you in the family of God? It's not you. It's not your abilities. It's not your devotion. It's not your prayer. It's not your um, understanding of the Bible. It's not your uh, exercising your faith in service. It's not your attending church. It's not your giving. What keeps you in the family of God is the God who is able. He is able. And it is him who keeps you. And that's where the confidence comes from that Hebrews was talking about earlier. Jesus speaks about this sort of thing. In John chapter 6, he says this. John 6, verses 37 and following says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So you have to follow that text carefully. He says, all that the father gives me will come. So these sheep will come to me. And then he says, this is the will of God. That anyone that he's, anything that he's given me, I'll never lose it. I'll never lose it. It'll never leave my presence. My sheep will never be lost everlastingly. I will never lose any. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should never lose anything that he has given me. But I'll raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says it emphatically. This is God's will. This is what will happen when God gives me a sheep and he gives me a, someone to care for. I will never cast them out and I will never lose them. Jesus says it. it, it they will not be lost, but instead they will have eternal life. Not life that is contingent upon something they've done in this moment or maybe tomorrow, but it's eternal life declared from the moment you believe. Whoever looks to the Son, he says, and believes should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus there, incredibly, says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, the Father who is greater than all, no one will snatch them out of his hand either. Now there are some uh, who hold a position that would say, this text says, well, no one else can snatch you out of God's hand, but you can choose to leave it. And that's wrong. It's erroneous. Because here, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. Eternal what? Until the point you say no? That's not eternal. Eternal means now and forevermore. And he says, they will never perish. He doesn't say they will Never perish if they so happen to make sure they stay within my tight grip. The God who is greater than all, including them. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, including them. They have eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will do anything about that. Because it is his sheep that he has laid down his life for. There is no way that that's reversed. And then John 3.36, John chapter 3, obviously the most famous Bible verse in the world. God so loved so that he gave his only son. That so whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Period. But then later in that chapter, and then verse 17 is good as well. But then later in that chapter in verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son, whoever is called to the Son, whoever obeys the Son, when he calls you to repent and believe the gospel, he says they have eternal life. Again, 
life that is everlasting from the moment you get it forevermore. It's eternal. So Jesus, speaking of this reality, says, well, he will be upheld because it's God's will that my sheep will never be cast out. My sheep will never be lost. No one or no thing can ever snatch them from my hand or the Father who is greater than all. Nothing can snatch them from his hand either. This is God's will. And to further um, give assurance of and security in, and not just the the fact that God, who is all-powerful, is able to keep you. God, who is faithful, keeps his promises. Jesus, who is your shepherd and, and father and savior, has got you in his grip, will never lose you. And the father has you in his grip and will never let you go. Further than that, as a, as a way of locking us in and, and securing our hope, is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, um, Paul speaking, he says, I'm with you also. When we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are sealed. It says, when you believe the gospel, when you heard the word of truth, believed the gospel, trusted in Christ rather than yourself, admitted all that you have done in your life is against God, and then you bring it to Christ and say, to him, because it's, it's him. You say, sorry, forgive me, I... I'm wrong, and there's no words that I could ever express that would make me right with you. But Jesus says, you're forgiven. I forgive you. And he welcomes you. He says, that moment when you believe, you were sealed. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Not just until you decide not just until you screw up bad enough. No. He has sealed you to guarantee your inheritance. Those who have truly believed. And then Romans 8.30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the golden chain of salvation, so it's been called. It's because... It shows that there is an unbreakable bond between the ones that God has called and and predestined and called and those who are glorified. There's no break in the chain. There is no, well, you know, they were predestined and called and and justified. They were justified. You know, their sins were forgiven. But now we're not sure if they'll be glorified. Never. Paul speaks so emphatically about our future glorification, our, our, um, our transformation one day in heaven. He speaks so emphatically about it, so certainly about it, that he uses present tense language. He says, the one who God has predestined and called and justified, he glorified. He says they're, they're glorified. They are as good as glorified already. That's how certain we are that those whom God calls those who God effectually calls, those who he forgives and justifies in Christ, they will most certainly be upheld. And it's not based upon their keeping of the faith. It's based on God. They will be upheld. It says there in Romans 14, 4, he will be upheld. 
God does it. It's God who does it. And that's the beauty. Philippians 1.6, a verse we all should memorize is, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because when you truly believe that, when you have that written on your heart, that God began the good work in me, it wasn't me. It wasn't my effort. It wasn't my pleading and my coming to him. It wasn't my finally realizing I was a sinner all by myself. It wasn't my just like going from darkness and I somehow discovered the light. It wasn't my hardness of heart and I made it pliable. No, God began the good work in you. And if he has done that, it says he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion, but then also he will bring it to completion. Not you. You didn't begin the good work in you. You don't need to bring it to completion. He does it. And so that that gives us such assurance, especially when we come to this text in Romans 14. He will be upheld. It's it's just like the striking reminder. The brother or sister in Christ is not upheld based on their convictions or their opinions or their living out of those things. They are upheld by the one who began their faith at all. This is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, I prefer that title to eternal security or once saved, always saved. And I'll mention in a few moments why. But Wayne Grudem, uh, a systematic theologian, he, he has a great definition of the perseverance of the saints. He says this. It's two parts. He says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. That only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. It's an amazing definition. And it's jam-packed. So he says, the perseverance of the saints, so those who will be saved and have a guarantee of it and have assurance of it, those, the perseverance of the saints means that those who are truly born again, and we normally get that, right? As Christians, we normally go right back to that and say, yeah, well, even if you use the line, once saved, always saved, you... You always have to add an asterisk and say, well, if you were truly born again, right? So Grudem includes that. He says, those who are truly born again, they will be kept by God's power. And they will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And it says that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So the evidence that you're born again, genuinely, is that you persevere. It's a two-part. God will keep you, but he will keep you, and he will strengthen you to persevere. If you do not persevere, what what Jesus even said about those who God has given him, they they will never be lost. They will never wander uh, eternally. They will persevere because he is their shepherd. He is their guide. He is the one leading them and strengthening them. And it is by God's power and grace. It's about persevering Christians. So the amazing thing about the idea of our eternal security, as we sometimes say it, is that it is based upon God. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. But yet, there's a second piece of it. And that's why the phrase um, eternal security can sometimes be misleading or unhelpful. Because people seem to think, well, I got the eternal security. I got the get-out-of-jail-free card when I signed up for Jesus. When I was seven, right? And, and you'll meet people like that who you ask them. I, I have, I've asked friends in college and I said, well, how do you know 
um, who gets to heaven? And the guy said to me, he said, well, I think I'm a Christian, aren't I? I said, well, if you have to ask, then no. Um, and he said, well, I, I think I went to church when I was a little kid, and, and I'm pretty sure I said I was a Christian when I was like seven. Said, that doesn't make you a Christian. <laughs> Unfortunately, he said, well, yeah, but isn't there like eternal security? You know, I said, oh, well, yeah, I'm glad you were taught about eternal security, but not properly. Like you thought, you were taught that if you just get this thing, if you just do this thing, you get baptized or you do whatever, you have eternal security. It's wrong. That's not why you have eternal security. And that's why I think the phrase is unhelpful. Same with once saved, always saved. Because then people say, well, yeah, I was saved, man. I raised my hand when I was nine watching a Billy Graham crusade. I'm, I'm, I was saved, right? You say, ah, but it's missing a piece. Once saved, always saved uh, gives people sometimes um, the license to, well, I checked the box and I can do whatever the heck I want. Uh, that's what sometimes people run with, right? They've misunderstood the gospel. But I think that phrase also sometimes is misleading, to think, well, doesn't matter what I do now, right? Jesus is gracious, right? Jesus is loving. Well, once saved, always saved. I'm saved. It's also misleading. It's true, but it needs a lot of explanation. That's why the perseverance of the saints is a very helpful phrase. Because, as, as Grudem mentioned it, it's a two-part of persevering. God will preserve you. He will, by his power, preserve you. But the evidence that you are God's is that you persevere. That's the evidence. God says that repeatedly through the scriptures. And so not only is this doctrine comforting, but it's also um, very, very concerning. Here's why. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word. So, if you don't abide, if you don't stay with me, if you don't um, abide with my word and trust me, you're not my disciples. doesn't matter what you said. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how much you paid to church or gone to church for 50 years. If you don't abide in my word, you're not my disciple. And then Matthew 10, says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's about the one who perseveres. One who through trial and tribulation, the one who the storms of life perseveres. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers in Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm to the end. Firm to the end. How do we know that we're secure in Christ? It says you become a partaker in Jesus if you hold fast to the end. One way you know is if you continue in the faith. So then... You get to the people who are backsliding, they ought to tremble. They ought to tremble. There is, there is genuine backsliding, right? We have the example of the prodigal son in the Bible. Um, he genuinely was a son. He belonged to the family of this father. So he was, he, he was part of the family. Like you and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into his family. Now this prodigal son wandered off, lived a lavish lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle, apart from his father, apart from the blessing of his father, and grieving his father all along the way. But he returned. He returned. But during his backsliding season, he even questioned, I don't even belong to that household anymore. I'm not worthy of that household. So he himself knew that if you don't live as a part of the family, you ought to question it. So when Christians are backsliding, and they're backsliding in a season of life where they just don't obey, they uh, reject the discipline of God, they reject the discipline of God's people, 
Well, when people refuse to repent for their sin, those people ought to tremble in their boots and not hold on to a token that says, well, once saved, always saved. Or, or I got eternal security. They ought to listen to the phrase, perseverance of the saints. And at this point in their life, if they're backslidden, the evidence is they don't belong to Jesus. And so the solution is the same. You, you fear and you tremble and you repent and you return to the Lord. Repent means turn, right? Turn from your sinful ways and trust in Jesus. Walk with Jesus for your forgiveness of sins. That's the solution. But a person who is backsliding should never be certain of their salvation. And we who know people are backsliding, we should never just rely on the fact that we think they're saved. Never, never, ever. The Bible does not allow us to do that. The Bible allows us to weep over them. Because if they continue in that way and they never come to faith once again in the Lord Jesus... Bible describes them as those who never knew him. So that ought to make us tremble. It's concerning. It's concerning. In Hebrews 3.12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. People who thought they were in fellowship with God, thought they were friends of God, but because of an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, an unrepentant heart, just showed that they didn't truly believe in the forgiveness through Christ to begin with. It's terrifying. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, there's no more sacrifice for your sins. And meaning, you weren't covered. Your sins were not atoned for. If you go on deliberately sinning against God, you ought to tremble. And, and you ought to think, I'm hellbound. The solution for that is the gospel, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you've screwed up. But come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Believe in me, and I will give you water that satisfies. Your hunger will be satisfied forever. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and be forgiven. Come to me and have life, and life abundantly, and life eternal. That's the call to anyone who is walking in this way and maybe uh, questioning, you know, am I really saved or am I just backsliding? The, the, the Bible is clear to both of those people. An, an unrepentant unbeliever, someone who's never, never embraced Jesus, and a person who says, yeah, I embraced Jesus a while ago, but I'm kind of doing my own thing right now. The message is clear to both. Repent. Repent. And believe the gospel. So, it's concerning that sometimes people bank on the idea that there's eternal security, and so therefore they feel like they can live how they please. But it's comforting doctrine. Because we know that it is by God's power that we remain in the faith. It's not by our power or our ability to persevere and to stay in the faith. It's by God's power. 1 Peter 1.5, I already quoted it, but I'll say it again. Who by God's power are being guarded. But here, it's through faith. God's power is giving us the faith to believe, is giving us the faith to persevere. God's power is enabling us to take that next step, to walk in repentance. God's power is doing that. So it's comforting. 
It's comforting to know that the, the power to repent and believe daily, the power to, to walk with him daily is not my own. And that's how this text can give us assurance. That's how this text can speak of this person as saying he will be upheld because it's by God's power. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So then the question for us is wherever we are in battling with our, our hearts and our, our question of, you know, will, will, I really go, <clears throat> will I stay a Christian in five months? What's going to keep me a Christian? You look to the gospel and say, God will. God will. I believe. I believe. And so there are some things that can give us a pre, a, a, an assurance. Um, first is a present trust in Christ. Well, do you trust in Christ right now? Because a person, maybe who is uh, extremely backslidden, would say, well, no, I don't. So therefore, they should not have assurance. But a person who does trust in Christ and is struggling with many things, if you trust in Christ and you say, I know he's the only way of my salvation, I know that I need to come to him daily for the forgiveness of my sins, I know that he died for my sins once for all. This is a present trust in Christ is what gives us assurance. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So that's again the, you must continue, but it's the faith. It says, stable and steadfast, not shifting of the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you continue in the faith, do you have a present trust in Christ? If you do, then continue in it. Don't be shaken, but walk with Christ, how he has empowered you to do today. Another thing that gives us assurance is the evidence of regeneration in my heart, not my head or my hands. Because a lot of people, right? Well, I know Jesus. I know lots of facts about Jesus. I can tell you all that there is in Bible trivia. Or those who say, no, I've served Jesus. Look at all I've done for him. You know, I've gone on missions trips. I've, I've given lots of money. I go to church. I've done lots of things with my hands. So, you know, that's my assurance. Well, no. The question is, is there regeneration in your heart? Are your affections made new? And that's the real hard part is because we can manufacture stuff with our hands. And you can, if you, you know, you like to read, you can gain lots of knowledge with your head. But you cannot manufacture something in your heart. So then, if you want assurance, you say, well, God, has God regenerated my heart? Do I hate sin more now than I did a year ago? Do I hate it when I sin? Do I hate it that I don't love him enough? Do I love him at all? Do I want to love him more? Do I want to walk with God? Is there a regeneration in my heart? Because that's what a regenerated heart produces, is a desire to please God, a desire to love God, and a disappointment with our sinful selves. Is there that in my heart? In my heart, am I being led by the Spirit to obey? And more so, day by day. Slight bits. But is it happening? Am I seeing the Holy Spirit in my heart uh, producing fruit, like in Galatians chapter 5, of love, joy, peace, patience. Is that being produced in me over time? Is my heart accepting sound teaching even if it's hard? And is my heart abiding in relationship, relationship with the Lord Jesus? John fifteen four, Jesus says, remain in me. Abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch is, branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you, unless you remain in me, remain in me. Abide in me. Are you abiding in relationship with the Lord? These things are evidence of the regeneration of your heart. It gives assurance. 
So a present trust in Christ, a regeneration of your heart. Another thing is long-term pattern of growth. In 2 Peter 1 verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with goodness, and goodness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Listen, for if these are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. These qualities. Is there a long-term pattern of, of growth in your life? Here's the thing. is This is a comforting doctrine. Because here it says, He will be upheld. You will be upheld. For the Lord is able. For the Lord is able to make you stand. It's comforting. But it is concerning. And that's where the term eternal security sometimes is misleading. Or once saved, always saved. Needs always an asterisk. Um... The response is always the same as we discussed. Repent and believe the gospel. So then, how does knowing all of this about the perseverance of the saints, that God will keep us, how does knowing this impact myself and then impact how I view and walk with others? Because that's what Romans 14 is about. It's about walking with others who disagree with me. Walking with others who have different opinions than me. said in Romans 14.4, look again. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It is God who does it. And so then, if you, in your own self, can be assured of your salvation, not because of your convictions you hold, not because of the the, the freedom you have in Jesus or the rules you like to keep, if you remember always that your salvation, your Christian faith, is based upon God's power and what God has done. How God brought you to faith, and God will keep you in the faith, and God will bring you home. If you remember that for yourself, then you remember that for someone else too. You remember that this person who you disagree with vastly, who may even be stuck in their, in their convictions and like living according to their convictions in a way that you, you never would, don't judge them because God has upheld them. They're not ever going to be, get into heaven because of their conviction, because of the opinion they hold, because of the uh, different teaching they might understand differently than you, and neither are you. But God will keep them. God will uphold them. And so because of that very truth, when you view a person who is vastly different from you in the faith, we already looked at last week is the idea of welcoming them uh, as a brother or sister, never casting them off, though they may hold a different opinion than you. You welcome them in the faith. You encourage them in the faith. You, you help them to glorify God in any way possible. And then here, uh, you remind them of their surety. Just as you remind yourself, I am not a Christian because I woke up today and read my Bible. I'm not a Christian tomorrow because I'm going to pray tonight. I'm a Christian because God has saved me and God will keep me. I remember that. And then sometimes your brothers or sisters in Christ who have different convictions with you will need that truth too. Just remind them. Be able to remind yourself, be able to be so sure in your salvation, you're persevering in the faith because of what God has done and what God is doing, that you may also transition and extend that same grace towards others. Say, remember, brother, remember, sister. I know you hold different convictions, and sometimes you think that God won't love you if you don't abstain from this thing. But I'm telling you, God loves you because of Christ, and God saved you because of Christ, not because of your conviction. And you will have eternal life because of Christ, not because of your conviction. 
This is a truth that we need to remember for ourselves, for the assurance and hope and for the glory of God. But also we need it to be able to minister to others um, who sometimes we even view them as, you know, a bit legalistic or a bit liberal in, in their secondary or tertiary issues. And we think, oh man, like how can I minister to them when I disagree with them? You can remind them of the gospel. Remind them of the certainty of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has done and what he has said, the grip that he has on us. It is an assuring doctrine. It's a comforting doctrine that we all need. And we all need reminders of because I'll tell you something. When you sin, the very first thing that your heart wants to disregard is this truth, right? The very first thing that the the enemy wants to do is condemn you and say, you're not worthy. Now, God, God won't accept you. Don't even bother asking for forgiveness. He doesn't love you. Look what you've done. No way. No, no, no. God can't accept you back. Don't, don't ever try. Don't think you're a Christian. That's the very uh, doctrine that the enemy wants to attack in us. Because guess what? The more you start to be discouraged in your repentance and belief in the gospel and your belief in what God has done, you're minimizing your understanding of who God is. Not about your Christian faith, but it's really minimizing the power of God and his ability to keep you. So that's what the enemy wants to destroy in you. So you need to remember this doctrine. Remember it and, and teach it to others as well. So that uh, you would be assured, you would be um, comforted by it when you sin. Be comforted by Christ and comfort others as well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you that even though we sin against you, the holy God, and we deserve to die, we deserve that wrath to remain on us eternally, you began a good work in us. You opened our eyes. You gave us a heart to feel and know. You gave us the Holy Spirit to help us to believe, to enable our faith, to give us a faith that remains steadfast and true, even when, God, we fail and we sin and we disappoint ourselves and we lack the comfort that we need. It's because we believe a lie and we disbelieve this truth that you have kept us and you, we will be upheld because you are able. God, help us to remember this truth and then also to extend that grace towards others who, who we may disagree with and we may even wonder if they're going to be upheld. But it's not based on them. God, let us never look to them and let our vision be stopped on earthly things. Let our vision be to Christ and all that he's accomplished for his sheep. Thank you for your grace towards us. And may you be glorified as we trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.